There he is. Good. Oh, good. I did it. There's so many things to think about. Okay. I know, I know. I'm going to push the red button. That's it. Uh, testing one, two, three. This is a test. Whoa. Perfect. Oh, hold it over my headset. <laughs> yes. This is really, really stupid. Okay. I love it. Everything about it is stupid. That's what I like about it. <laughs> Holy shit. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bunn. Phil and Ted's guest today is Neil Israel, comedy writer, director, and creator of the movie classics Tunnel Vision, Americathon, and The Police Academy. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm still Phil Proctor. And we have a very special and personal guest with us today, Neil Israel. We go back a long ways together, which we'll get into during our conversation. But I'm also very interested in hearing what Neil's up to now, because he is definitely one of the busiest people in the business. How do you know? You're not here. You don't see what I'm doing. <laughs> <You're> been... <laughs> You've done a lot of things. Probably people would know most would be the Police Academy series of movies, of which there were seven. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. This was something that you did with Pat Proft. We created it, and um, we after we did the first one, we were done doing other things, and they wanted us to start doing uh, the sequels. And we felt like, uh, I don't know, we've done it already. Why, yeah. why are we going to do another one of these? So it was nice because we kept getting checks and we didn't have to do anything. Isn't that the best? That's the yeah, best. The greatest. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. I like I like when they hire you to do something and they decide not to make it and they pay you anyway. Like I've been hired <laughs> yeah. to direct movies where they just didn't go and they had to pay me like I directed the movie. They call that pay and play. I love that. I went to IMDb and I just did a rough calculation, and those movies made well north of $200 million in box office. You know, and you know, of course, in today's dollars, what is that now? Is that, a, is that $800 million or a billion? I don't even know what that is now. Wow. But uh, the first Police Academy, I think, I think the budget, I'm going to say it was under $4 million, right? And so... Even in today's dollars, that's not a lot of money, right? How much no. could it be? Twenty? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing made 150, 160, I don't know, something like that. Million. Isn't that wonderful? That's great. They couldn't they couldn't hide the profits. They had to actually pay us. They didn't know what to <laughs> there do. There you go. There you go. How are we gonna hide this much? <laughs> oh. Tunnel Vision predated even Americathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was working at CBS. I was in charge of the promo department and I would always, you know, we would constantly turning out these trailers for these uh, shows. And I would always, sometimes I would um, make up fake narration to go with it. You know what I mean? Or I just do fake, just for my own amusement and for the other people there. And I said, well, this, this, why don't we do this as a movie? <laughs> just make fun of CBS, just screwing around. And mm -hmm. we were going to do it. In those days, the improv in Hollywood, before it was the improv, it was called the, the Pitchell Players. It was a... The Pitchell Players. I don't know if you guys right. remember this, but... Right. Sure. It was an improv group that were in there. And I went in and talked to the guy who was running it, a guy named Joe Roth. He was running this little place. Oh. And I said, look, I want to set up monitors in the inside the theater. And people will come in. It's like they're watching television. But it's our own crazy network mm. of stuff. And he said, oh, that sounds good. Let's do that. I said, okay, and you can help me produce it. He goes, oh, good. I've always wanted to produce. Boy. And so we started to make this. While I was at CBS, all kinds of people wanted to be involved, even though we had practically no money. In fact, uh, Phil Proctor was the president of Tunnel Vision, our fake network. And not handsomely paid for it. I mean, for the... <laughs> Nobody was handsomely paid, and there was some resentment, but SAG did allow us to get away with this. I don't know how. You can see Tunnel Vision on YouTube. Oh, you can? Okay, I didn't know. Yes, I watched it the other night. Oh. Phil's at the, the top of the picture. Right. He gets killed. Handsome. 
What a handsome devil! Yeah, he was a That's... he was a handsome devil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get killed right away, but I get but I get to live on in flashbacks. You get killed at the end of the movie. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, at the end of the movie, right? That's right. Yeah, at the end of the movie. Uh, uh, I remember when I was doing my first soap opera, Edge of Night. I was playing a juvenile delinquent named Julie Kurtz. And all the all the boys had female names. All the girls, Cookie Pollock was my girlfriend. They had male names. And uh, after I'd been on the air for a couple of months, the writer came to me and said, "Hey, we got a storyline for you." I said, "Great." He said, "You're going to get murdered. You're out. You're done. <laughs> right, right, right. You're, you're done." But he said, "But don't worry. You'll come back in the courtroom scenes." Nice. Thanks. Nice for nothing. <laughs> so, so that was you know I'm used to getting murdered in movies. Yeah. It's it's okay as long as I still get the residuals, you know. I acted in a horror film called uh, Island of the Alive. This this wonderful director Larry Cohen did this movie. Ah. He was he was a horror master, and the reason I did it was because I got to go to Kauai. That's where we shot it. Oh, nice! And the way nice. I got killed was, I was in this lagoon. And this giant baby, you see, there, there were these babies who were born as monsters. This was the third sequel. <laughs> it was um, Karen Black and Michael Moriarty. They were the parents of these babies. Oh, my so God. So they had to take these babies to this tropical island because they were a danger to the populace. And I was a scientist who went over there to see how they were progressing. Well, how they progressing was they grew but they were still babies. <laughs> so they had these baby outfits that these midgets wore, of real midgets. Oh my Lord. In baby outfit. Yeah. So they put this guy who was a midget weightlifter, he was a strong little midget, <laughs> and they put him in the water. So he was supposed to come up out of the water and grab me from behind and drag me under. So, okay, action. Comes up behind me. I feel him behind me. And he grabs me. And now I notice as he's pulling me under, he's struggling. Well, what happened was the water filled up the baby suit and he was drowning. Oh. So I'm trying to save this guy who weighs now about 500 pounds and he's fighting me. He's fighting me. Because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's excited. He's, he's drowning. drowning. He doesn't right. want my fucking... So, I mean, all these people jump in. The crew jumps in. They, we saved the guy and everything. But that was, yeah, oh my that was God. my big death scene in that thing. <laughs> you saved the mighty midget. Horrible. Now, that that's an unusual yeah. story. You know, during, during this conversation for uh, you folks out there uh, who may know some of these, have uh, seen some of these wonderful movies when you hear all of the things that Neil and, and Pat did together... But uh, the people that we're talking about, you know, way back when, have gone on to amazing careers. Yeah. Joe Roth, for yeah, instance. Yeah, we can talk about him. He, he, he became the head of Disney, became the head of Fox, became the head of his own studio. From, from that little club on Melrose, from that Humble little club. Humble beginnings at the Pixel Players, he improvised a great life for himself. Yeah, he sure did. He really, he was a, he was a natural. I mean, he really was... He was very good at it. Yeah, and Karen Black, who you were in that movie with, she was a girlfriend of mine in New York. Oh, for Pete's sake. I introduced her to Henry Jaglum oh. at, at, at Downey's one night, and I, and I had to just leave them there because, you know, there those minds engaged. Right. Next thing I knew, uh, he, he was encouraging her to come out to Hollywood, and bingo, you know, and her career took off. So we, we were friends right up to her, her sad demise. Right. Both Americathon and Tunnel Vision were unique films in, in terms of their genre, their style, and their format, which were obviously unique to the times, too. Yeah. What do you think accounted for you getting away with doing these movies? Well, first of all, our generation, because mm -hmm. this is the Boomer show, Yeah. Uh, we at a certain point had developed a lot of our own styles artistically, I think. And, you know, you had the... The older generation were doing Carol Burnett, uh, your show of shows. Mm -hmm. Laughing. That kind of mm -hmm. humor, which was not, you know, but in over in England where the Goon Show yeah. and Python and all those things were percolating, there was a new, I was very aware that there was a new humor coming out. Uh -huh. And and I had a, uh, I did a play off Broadway in New York that Michael Douglas was in. Upstairs in that theater was another theater, and they had Channel 4, which was the Groove Tube. Hmm. 
So I actually saw that and I just put it in my head and I went, this is another example of this kind of humor. One of these days, I've got to do that. Wow. And so now I found myself at CBS doing the promos for All in the Family and um, <laughs> Carol Burnett and all those shows, Sonny and Cher. You know, I knew all these people, Tony Orlando and Dawn. Wow. And so uh, they were, to me, very old-fashioned in a way. Yeah, yeah. Not that I didn't like them. They were old-fashioned. But they were ripe for satire in my, my mind. Yeah. All the commercials were. Everything was. Yeah. Really. Is it fair to say that laughing was sort of a transitional format? Because that was sort of scatological. And Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it was. I, I think it was, you know... Um, the idea that you could have Richard Nixon making fun of himself. Yep. Uh, you couldn't imagine that happening on the Jackie Gleason show or on Andy Williams show. Or, you know what I mean? Yep. There is a, a through line through certain television shows. I'd start with Ernie Kovacs. Oh, yeah. And then I would go, and then I would go Steve Allen. Yep. <laughs> because these guys had a whole different kind of mentality, you know? Very loose, loosey-goosey. And then what happened to the Smothers Brothers, which I think the anticipation was a much straighter show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They did not back down at all. That's right. Were so angry about what was going on out there uh, and incorporated the drug culture on CBS, which was yep. the straight... I mean, the guys at CBS, most of them still wore white shirts and ties. Nobody even had a stripe on their shirt or a color. <laughs> it was white, man. And they paid for it dearly because finally Nixon called up um, Paley and said he's, he's... You can't do this. You can't. You know, they, 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 they're attacking everything. So there was something afoot. When you, you know, when you kill our heroes yeah. and you add drugs to the mix that expanded our minds, th th you know, you couldn't be in stasis anymore. There had a, something had to happen, and it did. It was a tipping point for sure. Right. Americathon and Tunnel Vision and Fire Sign really thrived in the late 60s and 70s. Right. But then as the Reagan revolution took foot in 1980, yes. that really was the beginning of the end of that era and things narrowed. Yes. Well, what was interesting about both of those movies, Tunnel Vision and Americathon, they took place in some future time. Yes. Because... I was very fascinated with the idea that if our generation kept going, what would that do to media? Well, how would it change things? Mm -hmm. Tunnel Vision, the No Bullshit Network. Tunnel Vision and Americathon both, both predicted things that actually happened, even though I didn't call Tunnel Vision streaming or cable. That's essentially what it was, because I was talking about narrow casting, that you could actually do shows that would attract a huge audience. That's right. And they didn't necessarily have to be mainstream. This is television of the future. And here's a sneak preview of the new shows you'll see on Tunnel Vision, 1985. Knocked up and on the run, The Pregnant Man. The other premise was people will watch anything <laughs> that takes them out of their heads, okay? Dealing in reality, that's what life's about. This is Tunnel Vision. We had um, a sitcom with the Manson family, Psilocybin, Silly, whatever the hell that oh, promo I was. Oh, I forgot that. It's hilarious family entertainment with those cut-up cuties on Charlie's Girls. Romanian scumbag. <laughs> the Manson trial was going on then when we made it. So the, the idea that people would, in some future form, watch something like that. That's called cutting edge. Right. Right? Oh. Yeah, and, I, and, and my character that you wrote, the uh, Christian Broder, yeah. who had created the network, I was kind of the mouthpiece for that, that projection, right? That's right. We just put the stuff on. It's not my fault. Yeah, that's right. It was your, was your attitude. It was racist. It was sexist. It was all of that. Your character, Phil, was almost like a future Rupert Murdoch. That's right. The similarity between his character, Christian Broder, and Murdoch is um, they, would, they realized by taking an outrageous position, people would watch. Whatever, whether you believed in it or not, it didn't matter. You'd get eyes. 
Catch the scintillating wit and warmth of Ramon and Sonia. The fungal mats. <laughs> it's rib-tickling humor at its best. Give them what they want. This is what they want. That's right. Everybody was in that movie. Because Second City was in town then. At uh, in Pasadena, so I was able to cast some Second City people. Oh, yeah. Uh, John Candy, he came from Second City. I mean, it was unbelievable who was there. Che there. Chevy Chase was in it, too, wasn't he? Chevy was there. Now, Chevy, I knew because I had an improv group in New York. So I knew Chevy from New York. Oh, Chevy and Pat Proft mm -hmm. were writing for the Smothers Brothers. They were a writing team. And Pat also was in it. That's how I met Pat. So... They said, oh, Chevy's in it. Chevy's around. He said, you have something for Chevy? I said, sure, bring Chevy over. Yeah, sure. And this is before Saturday Night Live, probably, what, eight or nine months before Saturday Night Live went on the air. And um, I'd seen Chevy in New York in a similar thing called, it was a place called Channel One, which became GrooveTube. And Chevy was in that. So he came in and I said, just use your real name. I love your name. Yeah. And hi, I'm Chevy Chase. Oh, no kidding. I'm Chevy Chase. Chevy. Chevrolet. And then just as the movie was coming out, Saturday Night Live went on the air. Lorraine uh, Newman, who you guys had on your show. Yeah, bless her. He, she was also in it. Uh, Al Franken and Tom Davis, who also went on to Saturday Night Live. Oh, my gosh. So there was a lot of people in town then. Yeah. Between that and the committee, yeah, all these yeah. great improv groups that were around. You carried that idea into Americathon. They were trying to raise $400 billion. Right. And who did they owe the money to? That's the, that's the interesting thing. American Indian. Right. Native Americans had loaned all this money. <laughs> He'd become very wealthy because he owned Nike, which was the, what was it? The Native Indian... I forgot what it stood for, but it was knitting. It was a knitting... Knitting enterprise. What had happened is that, you know, sports clothing had become so huge. Yep. Just like now, right? Like now, everyone was in tracks. The whole, the whole movie, everyone is in a version of a tracksuit. <laughs> Americathon is a motion picture that you can also see on YouTube that is remarkably uh, prescient and very apt for our time because it's really about the bankruptcy of America and how, you know, how, how to save it. And uh, it started with a thing called Gothamathon that Peter and I did as part of our touring act. And Neil saw us. It was in Boston, wasn't it, Neil? Yeah, it was in Boston. Yeah. yeah. I was promoting tunnel vision. I was in town. Oh, I'll be yeah. darned. And he said, this is a good idea for a movie. I'd like to make this movie with you. That's right. The other thing that struck me was the establishing shot of downtown Los Angeles as the futurescape. Mm -hmm. I love shooting that. You could see how thick the air was back then. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. Smog of the day. The freeways are jammed now. Cars have disappeared from the sea. That, that opening number, first of all, we had the Beach Boys who weren't really talking to each other at that point. They'd broken up. We'd gotten them, I don't know how, to record a new song for this thing. in the same space. Each one did their own thing in a different place. Oh, and they were Zooming. Mixed together. Right. <laughs> yeah, they were, yeah, that's right. It was mixed together. But then the we took over a section of freeway because nobody had cars anymore. They were on bikes. They were on running. They were at skateboards or they were on roller skates. And that was like, to me, one of the great moments of my life, watching that scene unfold and watching, you know, a hundred people running along the freeway with oh, no cars. Wow. And one of the extras... One of the extras is my uncle Mersh, who came out from uh, New York, <laughs> and I put him in a tracksuit. And Uncle Mersh said, "I can't believe all these people for you, you schmuck! How did you get all these people here?" <laughs> but that was another futuristic look because that that looked like Ciclavia, you know, where we closed down the streets in Los Angeles for bicyclers. That's right. Now, I want you to tell a story that really blew me away, and it's in the book Americathon, uh, which is Peter Bergman and my kind of reminiscence of our life on the road and how that piece evolved. Right. How was it that you got the money to make Americathon? Oh. You know this story? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just as a prelude to it. So, <laughs> you know, I wrote the movie for Fox. And they, I remember having a meeting at Fox and they went, we don't know what this is. We don't want to do it. Yeah. And I said, I'm telling you, I could picture lines around the block. Yeah. And the, I'm not going to mention who the executives were. He was saying, 
I see no one coming in. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. So now I had a dead script, you know. Oh, my God. And I was um, dating this, this girl. And um, she said, uh, so what's happening with your movie? I said, well, Fox doesn't want to make it. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. She said, well, I know a guy who actually runs a studio. I said, you do? She said, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Why did I give him the script? I said, go be my guest. Okay. All of a sudden, I get a phone call from this studio head who says, I've read the script. I love it. I think I want to make it. Why don't you come in? Oh. I went, this is unbelievable. And I say to this girl, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I don't know how you did this. I go in there and he says, yes, let's do it. I love this. This is fantastic. And this man had run Paramount. He had greenlit The Godfather and all this stuff. And I thought, this is, this is incredible. And as the meeting is breaking up, he says, so how do you know her, this yeah, girl, yeah. whose name shall be nameless? I said, well, we're dating. <laughs> he said, oh, really? He said, well, are you, are you sleeping with her? I said, well, yeah. Said, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, so am I. <laughs> I said, what? So apparently she just passed the script in bed from my bed to his bed. <laughs> and we had a very hearty laugh at that one. And uh, that was Hollywood the way it used to be, right? Uh, you think? Just play the game, no shame, you know. That's true. No, she listened. She did a wonderful thing for both of us. That's a great story. I love that story. I know. So this is how it became funded, and it went from there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the cast it was amazing. Incredible. How did you attract George Carlin and Harvey Corman? I don't know. Uh, Peter Marshall, Jay Leno, Tommy Lasorda, Howard Hesseman. Yep. Uh, I think it was because people knew that these movies were going to be fun. You yeah, know? I guess. They were going to be fun. And they were making fun of the rigorous society that we were living in at the time. Right. The strict society. We got Elvis Costello in it. Yeah. Which just is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. John Ritter was... John Ritter. John Ritter was the president yeah. of the United States. Damn it! Ooh. I'm not a country. I'm not an office. I'm not a decorative seal. I'm a person. I'm a man. I'm a man who wants to make love to you. Oh. You want to pull. Harvey Corman was amazing in it. Folks, do something. I'm dying. Call in. Make a pledge. Harvey Corman. Amazing. What you're talking about also reminded me that Peter and I did an album called uh, TV or Not TV. Yeah. Which, you know, which also uh, predicted the concept of having hundreds of channels, right? Right. So that people could cherry pick what it was they wanted to see. You know, it just, we, we were, our, our feet were in the future. In those days, one you, yeah. you know, any every everybody who had a really uh, intelligent sense of humor was projecting these uh, these comic ideas into the future because, like anything goes, right? Because you couldn't have the events of the '60s and the media. Uh, you couldn't do the Beverly Hillbillies, yeah. And have that go into the 70s. It just couldn't happen. That's right. Mm -hmm. Things were changing. You couldn't do the real McCoys and all those other things that were on. Those things just didn't make any sense. In fact, it was the end of variety shows, really. Those, those shows went away. Yeah, which is the downside of it, frankly. Right, you know, right. That I mean, Saturday Night Live, which kept that kind of humor. Skid humor. But it also had, it also had uh, down periods especially in the 80s. It sort of uh, lost its way. But the 70s also not only did have Saturday Night Live break out, but we had Mary Hartman, we had America Tonight, Fernwood Tonight. That's right, that's right. They were just unique to the times. Right. And they were parodies of, you know, the, the form, the, form, yeah. the old forms. Yeah. That's because we all grew up on Mad Magazine. Yeah. That's right. And, and one of the thrills, which is uh, probably not in my resume, is... Uh, I got hired to write a movie for Mad Magazine, and uh, Pat and I, mm. and we were we were write, we wrote it with um, two of the great Mad Magazine writers, a guy named Arnie Kogan mm -hmm. and uh, Larry Siegel. Oh yeah, and these these were the guys who wrote the movie satires. Oh wow! In Mad Magazine, 
And um, they flew us to New York to meet with William Gaines, who was the founder of Mad Magazine. Right. And, you know, yes, like everybody of my generation who's in comedy, that I grew up, I grew up on. Wait a minute, I'll show you something. Hold on a second. Of course, the people in the podcast can't enjoy this, but I'll describe it. That's me and Pat in Mad Magazine. Oh, wow. Arnie Kogan uh, said, I've got, a, I've got a surprise for you. And sure enough, it's Dick Martin from Laughing. Yeah. It's a, okay, and we're accepting an award. Accepting the raunchy are the two creators of Cop Academy, Neil Izzy, and Pat Prop. <laughs> <laughs> then and my, my bubble says, as creators of Cop Academy and Bachelor Orgy, <laughs> we've made millions. Since you love coughing up five bucks to see junk, we will continue to crank out the sleaze. Watch for our new films, Nuclear Winter Nymphos and Hot Tub Girls Go Home for Passover. Those are our two new movies. This is the only thing I have hanging in my office because this is the only thing that really matters to me. I got into Mad Magazine. You know. That's wonderful. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guest, Neil Israel. And talk about a blast from the past. This is it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Johnny Cash for Barbecue Anonymous. Barbecue was once considered the ultimate pleasure to the palate, the supreme king of foods. Now we must realize that old King Q was a killer. Yes, heart disease and barbecue walk hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I keep a stopwatch on this heart of mine. I turn my nose up to a plate of swine. Whether it's rib slice, chopped or fried pork rind, if it's barbecue, I must decline. If it's barbecue, I must decline. Mmm, suet. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, go to SexyBoomerShow.com. Share the link with all your sexy friends. And find out how to get your very own Sexy Boomer bumper sticker at SexyBoomerShow.com. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, comedy writer and movie director, Neil Israel. And now we're back. Our special guest, Neil Israel, who has done movies, television, direct, write, Police Academy, Americathon, Tunnel Vision, and much, much more. Yeah, he's a creative genius, all right. Just ask him. We should talk a little bit about Pat Prof because he's being mentioned a lot here. The great Pat Prof. He was invited to be on the show with us today, but these remote interviews during the pandemic, that's why we call our series Bunker to Bunker. We just couldn't get connected to his bunker in in Minnesota. So uh, hopefully someday soon. We're still working together. How many years, Neil? It's been a long time. We've been writing together, I would say, since 79. Wow. I think the first thing we wrote together was a musical for Ringo Starr on NBC. We did a book (laughs) musical. How perfect is that? Oh, my God. And uh, that's something you can see on YouTube. That's worth seeing because listen to this cast. John Ritter played his manager. His girlfriend was Carrie Fisher. His father was Art Carney. Wow. Oh, and Vincent Price was his shrink, Dr. Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Nancy. And George Harrison's in it. What was it called? Was it the Ringo Starr Show? The Ringo Starr Special. It was basically, we took The Prince and the Pauper, where Ringo played Ringo, Mm -hmm. the famous Beatle. And then he was Ogner Ratz, which is Ringo Starr backwards, who sold (laughs) maps to the stars' homes. Oh, wow. And they look exactly alike. And Ringo sees this guy. He hates being an ex-Beatle and a musician. He never has any time to be normal. So they switch places. And uh, Ogner Ratz, of course, doesn't really know how to play the drums, (laughs) can't sing. Great idea. And Art Carney is horrible. He's like a you know, he's like a, a character out of Dickens. He's terrible. And Ringo keeps saying, you don't understand. I'm not really, I'm I'm Ringo Starr. You know, <laughs> and Art Carney's going, yeah, right. Yeah, sure, shut up. You know? <laughs> but, you know, I I was always a little disappointed that you chose uh, Pat Prof with a PP. Yeah. Uh, when you were working with Phil Proctor with a PP. So, I, <laughs> what you know. Well, first of all, Pat had more hair. 
Yeah. And since I was losing mine, <laughs> I, did, I really didn't want to be around another bald guy. I found that really annoying. You're, talk, you're talking about Bergman, aren't you? Yeah, I'm talking about Bergman. Bergman, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah that guy. Yeah. But it wasn't about you. No, I know it that. It had nothing to do it, with one you. Of the, one of the regrets of my life, honestly, Neil, is that, again, to catch people up to the, this incredible history that we've shared, uh, Peter and I were working with Neil to develop the first stages of the Americathon screenplay. And at a certain point, uh, Peter and Neil really got into a conflict over a comic conflict of some sort, which is very, very common in when you're working comedy, you know. Yeah. And Neil, I remember, called me up uh, and said, Phil, I can't work with Peter anymore. It's just too, it's just too upsetting. Uh, but, but I'd like you to continue on. And I said, well, I can't do that because I'm loyal to Procter & Bergman. Right. I still regret that. Well, what would have happened had you done that? What would have happened? What would have happened to your relationship to well, him? Well, I, th I really, what would have happened? This is true many times in my career. Since we're, we're boomers talking here, we have a history. We all have a history. Yeah. Uh, many times in my career, I was offered opportunities that could have taken me on an entirely different path. I remember you, and was it Michael Gruskoff? Yeah. yeah. Once offered to manage my career, and I was too stupid to understand what that would mean. Did you turn us down? I don't well, even yeah, remember I, that. It was the same thing. I thought, I, I can't leave the Firesign Theater. I was kind of trapped in that success, you know? Yeah, but you're also a loyal person, yeah. which is not a bad quality. No, it's true. It's not necessarily a quality that's going to make you rich, but it's... Well, that's right. You, 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 you're going to get into heaven, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe you right. got a shot. I wasn't smart enough to know what management really meant. Or I would have embraced that because you know the show business when it when a career works yeah. it means that you have a collaboration with people and there's a give and a take and people kind of you know understand what it is you need and what you want. That's the wisdom that you've acquired with age. Yeah, true. When we're when we're starting and especially you know you struggle you struggle and all of a sudden you're hot. Uh, you don't have that wisdom. Uh, Seth Rogen said something interesting recently in an interview. He said, um, being famous is a talent in itself. A lot of people can't handle it. Very smart. And I think that's very true. Yeah. So when you finally get that level of success, uh, if, you are, if, you don't if your feet aren't on the ground, <laughs> you make a lot of mistakes. You do a lot of things that you shouldn't do. Uh, and you're headstrong and your ego takes yeah, over. Yeah, your head is in the clouds and your your feet are not on the ground, so... Feet are up your ass, but yes. Where are you going? Even blowing up with with uh, Bergman was part of my ego trip. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Whereas uh, a few years before, I mean, he was like an idol of mine. So it's, it's a weird, right? When I was writing with Steve Martin, I mean, I'd be sitting there in the room and thinking... How the hell am I writing with uh, Steve Martin? Uh, He's so brilliant. Yeah. And when I would make him laugh, I would think, oh, wow, I made him laugh. <laughs> this is like the greatest thing in the world. But it's always the insecurity underneath the big ego, yeah. right? And with age, um, the ego kind of goes away, and so does the insecurity. And you are who you are, and it's fine. That's the nicest part about it. You know what I mean? You, you're actually doing the work and not second-guessing yourself. You're doing the work because you love the work. That's right. The editor has gone away. How is this going to go over? Yeah. Is anybody going to get this? I'm going to get killed for the critic. All gone. And that's a really, that's why you can, even though people say, well, you can't really do good work when you get older. I don't. I, oh, I don't, no, I, don't I know. That's, that. that's really a terrible misconception. That, right. You know. I heard Stephen Sondheim said that recently. He said, well, you know. I'm working on something, but he says most people's late careers aren't any good. And I was like, Stephen, oh, what? what? Is wrong? Hello, are you kidding me? Oh my God, don't say that. And speaking of that, you're working on a musical right now about James Brown, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had met this man right after James Brown died, who worked with James Brown from the time he was 11 until Brown died, so about 43, 44 years. Mm. He became his everything. I mean, he started holding the coat. Yeah. <laughs> he always had a guy holding the coat. And he was holding the coat when he was 11. And, he, you know, Brown gave him 40 bucks, which he'd never seen money like this. He's a street kid. Wow. But eventually, I mean, he started to do his hair. He was doing his makeup. He was doing his wardrobe. He was doing his books. 
<laughs> he was helping run his company. And then, you know, when he'd finally had enough, um, he made it, decided to do his own singing thing and made a demo. And then Brown, when he was going to leave, Brown said, wait a minute, I, I'm going to I'm going to record you and I'm going to put you on my label. Wow. So he could never get away from, you know, he could never get away from this guy. <laughs> and um, he basically, after Brown passed away and he expected Brown, Brown kept saying, I'm going to leave you a lot of money. And he didn't. He didn't. Aww. In fact, Brown didn't leave anybody any money except the foundation. He didn't leave him the coat. He didn't get the coat. He didn't get the coat. He, didn't, he got actually what he said he got. And I'm not kidding. He got a half of a bottle of, let's just say, ED pills. Pecker pills. Viagra. Viagra, Viagra, yeah. He got a half bottle of Viagra. <laughs> and I mean, he didn't get anything from the guy. <laughs> but he did get the band. He He's now... Um, it's it's RJ and the James and the original James Brown band. So they do play gigs together. Wow, that's okay. So this musical is it's really from his point of view. It's about his you know, it's sort of like when you're naive about somebody what we were just talking about, about, you know, you you admire somebody from afar and you idolize them, but then when you get to know them and you see the person, yeah, that opinion changes and sometimes um they take advantage of you. Hmm. And then finally, you've had enough. And that's basically the arc of this whole show and this guy's life. Hmm. So he's still living on his son's couch, by the way. He's he, he's still struggling. He's hoping oh. that the musical will open soon. Oh, wow. Jesus. How many years was he with him? 43. My yeah, God. 43 years. He was his best. I mean, really, he was his best friend. He really was. Yeah. That's an amazing story. Wow. Yeah, when Brown had his, uh, he got married a fourth time, and his new wife said, well, we're going to have a baby. Brown turned to RJ and said, how is this possible? I had a vasectomy, but I don't want to tell her. <laughs> so he told RJ, I want you to go to the delivery room. If that baby comes out white, because the woman was white, you just let me know. And if not, then we're just going to go with it, you know. <laughs> now, you're also writing uh, an autobiography. Yes. You've had a very variegated career, uh, and yet within the same kind of entertainment context, which I think is wonderful. It's like you've been reinventing yourself. Yeah, I think it's just you follow your interests, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't get stuck. Because I've never wanted to repeat myself, that which sometimes is to my detriment, I guess, because you get pigeonholed very quickly. Yep. You know, if you do a certain, like I was doing physical comedy and um, no one could imagine that I could actually write a ca real character or a real person. Mm -hmm. and, that, and you have to break. So you're constantly trying to break through barriers because people just want you to do what you do. And if you keep doing what you do, the same thing over and over, you are going to eventually, they're not going to want you to do it anymore because you're old hat. You know, sometimes I've just walked away from things. I didn't want to do it again. I didn't want to do it anymore. Yep. I understand. I've done that too. So that's, that's, that's what I've been doing, I guess, a lot of that. And pushing myself to a new challenge, see if I could do it. I don't know if I can. During this COVID time, are you, are you still been doing some directing gigs? No, about um, five or six years ago, I was working for Disney. And uh, I moved to Santa Barbara, and I, I, I just I was spending more of my time in L.A. during the week yeah. in a hotel, yeah. instead of enjoying my house and my children and my wife. And I went, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> so I just stopped. Good for you. I just stopped. I directed one more movie. Pat called me, said, "Look, we're doing a movie in L.A., and um, the director." Uh, isn't available. We shot part of it and they want to reshoot about half of it. Would you just take over as director? Uh, I, I had just had Guillain-Barre syndrome, which if you don't know what that is. Yes. I got uh, a flu shot and all of a sudden uh, I was a mess. I was in pain. I had to go to the hospital. I was supposed to direct a pilot. Ooh. I was I had so much morphine in me. I said, yeah, I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was on morphine when I told him I was in the hospital. I don't want to tell him. And uh, I, I knew I was in trouble when I said in the hospital, I said, what is in this jello? It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I must have been on drugs. That's a terrible ailment. A friend of mine just went through that. He had to relearn how to walk. Yeah, yeah. I had to take physical therapy and everything. So, so two weeks after I got out of the hospital, Pat calls and said, can you take over? It's Scary Movie 5. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, well, please, can you help? I said, sure. I said to my wife, I'm going to L.A. She said, you can't walk. <laughs> what are you talking about? 
I was on all these pain meds. I said, are you kidding? Pat called. It's a feature. I'm going to LA. I'm going to go do it. Hey, you're loyal so, too. That's great. Right. So I, I got a kid. Uh, this is kid who I had who was my assistant. I said, look, you're going to come to LA with me. Here's all the pain meds. Mm. When I touch my nose, <laughs> that means meet me in the bathroom oh. because I've got to have pain meds. Oh, we used to do that with cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Only now it was, uh, <laughs> I forgot the horrible drugs I would take. I was taking all these horrible drugs. I was high the entire time I was doing that movie. Oh, that's good. And I had, and by the way, it was a Weinstein movie. Oh. Before all the Weinstein. So it was Bob Weinstein behind me yelling, there should be more tits. Why aren't there tits? Can't you do some peeing? Let's put some peeing in here. Uh, this going on. And David Zucker was the other, you know, writer, producer with Pat. And, well, I mean, it was a zoo. It was just a zoo. Well, it's interesting. You wanted to go into that a little bit where you got your start, which yeah. was in New York, and it was the stage. Yeah, I, I, I got, you know, my degree is in theater. And um, when I first got out of school, I got a job as a record promoter. Don't I don't even know why. Oh my goodness! And I drove around trying to get radio stations to play records. I did get a couple of things. I was very happy. I got into the New York market. I got Brown Eyed Girl. You know that? Sure. I got that on WABC. That was a big thing. And then uh, Angel in the Morning. Oh, nice! Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but. I went to try and sign, you had to sign clients too, for a show, uh, original cast album, this show. And I talked to the producer and within five minutes, I said, look, don't hire me for the record. <laughs> hire me to work on this show. This is what I want to do. And I got to be this famous director, George Abbott's assistant. George Abbott, I mean, famous director. The king of Broadway. He directed until he was in his hundreds or something. That's like right. That, right. He died at 106, and I think he worked at 104. Oh, my Lord. And he was in his 80s then. He was amazing, Mr. Abbott. Because so I got to hang out there and watch him and watch the work. And then I, there was somebody who was on that show uh, as an observer who was a playwright. And uh, he hired me to direct his play and... On and on, and then I was directing in theater and all that. That's great. My father was an actor, and he was in theater. Aha! Uh -huh. And my parents met in a Broadway show, so all of it, all of it is sort of a fall. Uh, you were born in a trunk. I get it. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I'm. I want to do theater again. You know. Interesting. But you decided that you wanted to also make money, and that's why you went west. That's that was it. That was it. Because you'd be out of work, and even when you were working, you were, <laughs> I mean, you were lucky to get a a place in the East Village. You know, and share it with somebody. That's about all you could afford. And I said, this is not, this is not for me. Yep, that's right. I think we should touch a little bit more on uh, the Police Academy series. Yeah. It was such a big success, and there were seven of them. Looking at where the movies were really successful, the more authoritarian the governments were or had been previously authoritarian, the more successful those movies were because... Uh, you know, the more you have to deal with um, cops who are coming down on you, uh, the more you can make fun of them. Uh, I think that that's a, that makes the movie even funnier. So, you know, places like all over Europe, Spain hmm. uh, was huge. Um, it played very big in, in all the EU countries, really, when, when they think about it. Uh, and also because it was physical humor, you didn't really yeah. have to get American style, yeah, you know, dialogue right. jokes. Right. That's uncommon that comedy can transcend cultures like that. It usually doesn't. Most American comedies do not do well. There are parallels between the Police Academy series and what the Zucker Brothers did too, you know, the airplane series. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a friendly competition? Well, I mean, so friendly that, that Pat did uh, all the Naked Gun movies with them. Ah. We all sort of crossed over. No, it wasn't. Uh, I didn't ever feel in competition. Uh, although I never worked with uh, um, David Zucker until Scary Movie 5, hmm. which was just uh, six years ago, I think. Wow. But no, we were uh, we were all doing the same thing. I remember going to see Kentucky Fried Theater yeah. on Pico. Maybe that's the first time I saw Pat. I thought it was the greatest. I mean, it was just hilarious. Which is what became Kentucky Fried Movie. That's right. 
John Landis, who did Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah. And I, we were all in the same group. John and I became friends. We were all doing the same kind of thing. It's very interesting how styles come and go. Things become passe and then they come back. Are you trying to get another uh, police academy off the ground? Well, we're trying to get something where we reunite some of the actors. And they were former detectives. Mm. Um, but it's not police academy because we don't own police academy, so we can't do that. Ah, right. There you but, go. But uh, we do have a lot of uh, commitments from some of those actors if we can launch the thing. I personally think that they should do police academy again, but uh, I guess, you know, um, he and Peel did a version of the script uh, oh. of, a, of a sequel, um, I'm going to say five, six years ago, seven years ago, maybe. And it never happened. They've done several scripts, but... You know why it didn't happen. Why? They, they, they defunded it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, well, it'd be interesting now, given the scrutiny that police departments are under. Well, that's, that should be part of the story. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. It, it's like they don't, they're underfunded. Nobody wants to be a cop. It's the same thing. They, who's, who are they going to take? Whoever wants to come in, who wants to put up with that kind of abuse? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the thing was that political satire was, t it's always been tough. Yeah. Political satire, you know, what, it closes Saturday night. Right. Uh, That's right. Say. I loved Veep because I thought Veep really, really did it well. Yes, I agree. But if Veep was a feature, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how it would have gone. The, the way that I always thought of it, and certainly with Firestone Theater, was it was less political comedy than it was social satire. Right. Social satire. You, you know, because the underpinnings of all politics uh, is the way people feel about their their relationship to their world. Yes. You know, and that's what we were always screwing around with in, in our in our world. I don't think Saturday Night Live really gets gets there. I don't think they go there, really. It's it's to a degree. I mean, they're doing political some political sketches. They, they always start with one. Yes. But I don't think they necessarily go into what you're talking about. It's really a satire of media a lot. Yeah, but the, the commercial satires that they do. Yes, those are, yeah. Right there, I think the most pointed. Those are great. Yeah, those are great. Doing sketch comedies a little sketchier. It's a little harder. Yeah. We're going to have to wrap this up, uh, dear Neil, but we do have one last and vital question for you. Yeah. In your biographical notes, which you sent to us, yeah. you have one line here, which is, I once spent a month in a sauna with Brad Pitt. Yeah. And then you said, but that's another whole story, whole nother story. Oh, now you want to hear that story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Brad Pitt was dating a woman and I was dating another woman and they were both Scientologists. Uh-oh. <laughs> I guess they both convinced us what we needed to do was take this course, which yeah, yeah. If, you're, uh, if you've taken any drugs, they say, you need to sweat it out. You need to take vitamins and sweat it out because the drugs stay in your body. Well, of course, I'd taken a lot of drugs. Yeah, sure. So I said I would just so I could keep seeing this girl because that was the thing. Ha, ha, ha. So I go into the sauna and there he is. Same thing, same deal. Oh, <laughs> what we do for love. <laughs> same deal. So we were 30 days in the thing. playing. We played Monopoly. Those games went on. I mean, it was like six hours a day of Monopoly in a thing, sweating, sweating on the board. He was very competitive. I mean, every time I landed on one of his hotels, he was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's why he's a success, obviously. You were in for the same reasons, but how did you land in the same sauna? It was just happenstance. Wow. They, they signed both of us up. And it was, the, you know, it was for celebrities, quote unquote. Celebrity sauna. Exactly. And they thought they'd sweat it out of you. Well, I mean, I, I got wise. I realized there's no way they will know whether it's in or it's out. Mm -hmm. So one day I said, I think I'm clear. Yeah. <laughs> they said, okay, let's see. And they, they tested me and they said, yeah, okay. They let me out. <laughs> and Brad... As I recall, he didn't want to, one day he didn't want to go back. He said, I've had it. I can't, I can't. So he didn't do the right thing and say, I'm done. Instead, he said, I'm not coming back. Oh. And I don't know how that, I don't know what happened after that. What year was this? 91, 92. Wow. I was just across the street at La Poubelle. Wonderful restaurant. La Poubelle. I remember that. Sure. 
I remember that place. Great place. Yeah. What were you doing there? Eating. <laughs> oh, yeah. They had good food, though, at the Scientology place. A great dining room. Many of the Scientologists are extremely creative people. Uh, Karen Black was a Scientologist, too. You know, basically, you know, uh, it, it, it has to do with the fact that somebody finds something that works for them. Whatever floats your boat. More power to them, is what I say. Yeah, no, I, it's <laughs> fine. I mean, you know, I, I, was, I was done. And what happened to your relationship? That was over. <laughs> that was toast, right? <laughs> that was way over. That wow. point. It was too much. It was too many hoops. Yeah, too many hoops to one, jump through, right? Yeah, too many things. Yeah. Hey, listen, once you got some of those drugs out of you, you looked at her and you went, what? Not so much. <laughs> not so much. Not so, but not so much. <laughs> Actually, I was into Brad's girl at that point. That was a problem. Not really. No. We sure do appreciate you coming on the show. Sure. Absolutely. I've, I've listened to the show. It's really fun. Oh, thank you. Great fun. And just to be called a sexy boomer is sexy anything. <laughs> yeah, you are now officially a sexy boomer. Woohoo! Do I get a t-shirt? A yeah, bumper sticker. <laughs> I'll take it. And anything, anything that, 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 that I can use for something. Okay, good. I really want a t-shirt. Can't you have a t-shirt that says sexy boomer? Come on. That would be a great t-shirt. A t-shirt. Oh, yeah. I think it's time to get into merch, Phil. Yeah, it is. It is. I'll call merch up and see what he can do for us. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. A pleasure. Wonderful, Neil. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Neil. Wow. You know, Ted, I think this is one of our first boomer shows where we really got into what it was like to be a boomer and how it, how it influenced our lives and our careers. His career arc reflected the time so aptly. That's right. Check out Americathon because, Phil, you wrote the movie with Peter Bergman. Yeah. I mean, there was, there's a real Proctor and Bergman influence. Yeah, we wrote the movie up to a point, and then we kind of lost control of it, which is typical of, of movies. As Neil expresses in his comments, you know, uh, the, the spirit of the film was definitely from Proctor and Bergman. And, uh, and there it is. It's up on the screen. It works. It's great. It's funny. Well, Phil, it's uh, getting closer and closer to when we will be able to get out of the bunker, oh. thanks to the vaccines. Anyway, there'll be more of this if you can stand it. Come visit our website at sexyboomershow.com, and you'll be able to hear lots of episodes with really a, a, a fascinating group of guests. In your player right now, you can hit subscribe. So you'll be alerted when new shows come up. And if you'd like, you have an opportunity to send us a contribution to help this operation continue as we build our audience. And if you send $20 or more, we will send you a beautifully sexy, sexy boomer bumper sticker. And that 20 bucks is going to go towards vaccinations for me and Ted mm -hmm. and other good causes like that. <laughs> yeah, and the bumper sticker might just help you get lucky. That's right. After the plague, of course. Yeah, and the accident. <laughs> All right, Phil. Bye for now. See ya. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and special guest Neil Israel. Johnny Cash Barbecue was written and performed by Patrick Weathers. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a Ernest Guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man. <laughs>